This is Talk is Sheep, a podcast by the Wild Sheep Society of British Columbia. Come along as we take conversations that matter to you into the high alpine. Episode 39, Tony Caligiuri. Fantastic chat with Tony. Amazing. Well, I'm so glad you said his last name because I'm like, no, I'll butcher it. <laughs> yeah, I was actually going to ask him how to pronounce it, but on the podcast, he mentions his uncle and I was mm-hmm. like, oh, okay, I there wrote we, it down. There so, we go. I saw you saw yeah. the pen coming out fast and furious there. So, yeah. So, wildfires. Um, you, before we went live here, you were talking about what's going on. Uh, we got some stuff happening in sheep country right now. Yeah. Uh, the Lytton fire, unfortunately, has taken a turn to run northeast. And now, as as literally as we were recording, Spence's bridge has gone to an evacuation order. So, yeah, as you know, that's right in the heart of sheep country. And a couple of weeks ago, we unfortunately lost uh, Lytton to this, this same fire. And it's 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 doing some much needed habitat restoration, but at the cost of what, right? And where our, our our thoughts are with the community of Lytton and uh, all those affected by these fires, and hopefully they can get a handle on it. Well, and hopefully that, you know, we can convince our decision makers to start, you know, yeah. doing some, uh, doing maintenance work instead of reactive work, right? That yeah. we start being proactive and not just losing, losing towns that we, don't have to like there's there's alternatives right exactly that we did a great podcast the other week with uh, john davies and just we know as conservationists the importance of fire on the landscape and the way john digs down into it if you haven't heard that listen it's highly recommended uh it's it's great to see somebody with who's actually not only fought wildfires but uh, works at, as prescribing them and and works with organizations like the Wild Sheep Society to to put fire on the landscape intentionally to stop things like this happening. And as you said, it's we, we need to be proactive instead of reactive. And that's the state we're in in British Columbia when it comes to, well, pretty much everything when it comes to fish, wildlife, and habitat. We're going, well, shit, here we are. And well, we, we knew 30 years ago, like I, there's, there's a document right here in my hand from, uh, like mid nineties that says, uh, it, a mountain caribou and they're, they're threatened. They knew 30 years ago that there were, there was a problem and yeah, February 99. And, uh, here we are still talking about what can we do? We're, We're reacting instead of proactive. Like it's, it, it's just frustrating, but that's a whole other conversation we're going to get into. Right. So, yeah. 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 And uh, interesting enough, Tony mentions that on the podcast here mm-hmm. is one of the, the issues that he sees on, on the horizon for us. Um, they're, they're experiencing it down South as well. So um, yeah, it's a, it's a big issue. And uh, um, yeah. So episode 39 with Tony, this is a great chat. I think a lot of those diehard sheep hunters out there are going to enjoy this. Mm-hmm. Tony talks a lot about, uh, you know, his history, uh, you know, how he grew up, how he got into sheep hunting, uh, his touches on the conservation work. We don't go hard over on the conservation end of things. And then he talks about uh, joining the 700 Club and some some of his favorite hunts oh. and things he's done. So pretty pretty so, fun podcast. Actually. Yeah, so totally. Some recognizable names for anybody that uh, has done a little bit of reading or uh, internet scouring about sheep hunting. And he, he he's had a chance to not only hunt with them, but but to become friends with some of them and like, just holy crap, that's a who's who of, of not just sheep hunting, but hunting in general. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So uh, episode 39, uh, Tony Caligiuri. Tony is, um, he's the 
uh, treasurer for the Wild Sheep Foundation. Um, he, I think he said he's executive vice president of conservation for Boone and Crockett Club. Yeah. And uh, just he's been on the uh, conservation landscape. If you looked up the words conservation superhero in the dictionary, you would see a picture of our friend Omer from Precision Optics, a tireless donor and supporter of all things wild sheep. Precision Optics, located in Quinell, British Columbia, truly stands alone in the high alpine. From optics to rifles to outdoor gear and a knowledge that cannot be surpassed, toss in that killer smile and you have a total conservation package. Precision Optics, we are truly thankful for the support you show us every step of the way. Find them online at precisionoptics.net or in Aroma Foods, located just off Highway 97 in Quinell, BC. Well, good afternoon, Tony. How's it going? It's going great, Kyle. How are y'all? Fantastic. You coming to us from the great good. state of Iowa or where are you at today? I'm in Iowa. I'm in Iowa, actually. Yes, sir. Very good. So uh, really happy to have you on the show, Tony. Um, you know, I've had the honor of working with you through the Wild Sheep Foundation and our board of directors, and you've done a fantastic job serving as our treasurer, and it's just been a, a pleasure to be working with you. So I'm hoping today that, you know, we can touch base on kind of, you know, your you know, you, where you, where you came from really like, and, and maybe that's a good place to start, you know, talk about, you know, you're so engrossed in conservation, the wild sheep community and, and such a, an accomplished sheep hunter and hunter in general. Um, I kind of like to hear where that came from, kind of your upbringing and, and sort of these things that influenced you and, and where you came from. Oh, sure. Thank you. Um, for, for that. I don't know how accomplished I, I am. I'm, probably like most guys, I just follow the guides around and they tell me what to do, right? When it comes to sheep hunting. But, um, but I, I grew up hunting. I had a, you know, my dad, uh, was a, was a, um, was just kind of an all around, uh, upland hunter. Uh, he just, he just loved to hunt. He, he didn't have, a, a lot of, uh, equipment or anything special, but, um, my brothers and I, and my dad, we, we hunted every weekend of the season, whether it was, you know, rabbits or, or pheasants or quail or squirrels and, and fished and hunted mushrooms in the spring and summer and just had kind of an idyllic, uh, upbringing as far as hunting and fishing goes with, with my dad. And he, um, he was in the construction industry. So, um, you know, we're outside with him all the time and in the, in the woods and the timber, whether it was, uh, um, you know, running, uh, heavy equipment with him on job sites or, 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 uh, um, working with him. And so we were always in a, in an outdoor environment and got used to the cold Iowa winters and hot summers. And, um, and, uh, you know, grew up reading outdoor life magazine and all the hunting books and under the covers with a army surplus flashlight at, at midnight when I was uh, 11 and 12 and, um, you know, writing cheap outfitters. Uh, there were no cell phones or internet in the sixties and uh, posing uh, or um, being an imposter uh, sheep hunter when I was 12 years old. And I'm sure there's still some outfitters in the Yukon that would love to catch me after they wrote, you know, four and five page letters back, uh, not knowing that I didn't have any money and was only 12 years old and trying to book <laughs> a sheep hunt. Um, so just, just kind of like that. And then um, I had an opportunity uh, um, in my late twenties to, to move to Arizona, lived out there for a while. And, uh, my wife drew a desert sheep tag. I drew a desert sheep tag and, and then, um, um, uh, hunted in the Yukon for doll sheep and, and, uh, at a, a pretty young age, fortunately. And, and, uh, then, you know, you go through a kind of through a spell where you're, um, raising a family and, and not a lot of extra money. Um, and, uh, and then, uh, you kind of get all that out of the way. And then I, I guess the last, um, 15 years or so, I've been really blessed to, to hunt sheep about every, uh, every year, I guess. And so that's been great probably on the, uh, the down leg side of it now, but, but have been really fortunate to, to hunt all of the North American species, uh, uh, couple of different times over and some of them several times over. And, um, um, it's just been a, uh, uh, and, and it's not just sheep. I mean, I love to hunt everything, mostly, um, do it yourself, um, stuff, uh, things with my son, whether it's a, he's a very accomplished 
uh, hunter. And, uh, so we hunt elk together a lot, just, just him and I and antelope and, and deer, especially, um, deer right at home here. We've got a, a pretty good whitetail population in Iowa and then, uh, upland hunting. I've got, um, seven English setters and a couple English pointers. So I love, uh, I love pheasant and quail hunting and we, um, um, my friends and I and, and, uh, brothers and, and son, we, we hunt a lot of, we hunt a lot of birds when, when the, um, populations are on upswing. So, um, and it, it ties into my job too. So, um, I've been very blessed and fortunate and, and blessed to have a wife that lets me go do all that. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. So, Tony, uh, would you say there's one hunt in particular that, you know, if you could pick it every year, you'd go doing it? Is it upland game? Is it chasing whitetails? Is it chasing sheep? You know, is there one that stands out that if you could do it every year, that's the one you'd go to? Oh, for me, it'd be pronghorns because when you stop and think about it, that's the one hunt you can still do when you're 95 years old, you know. Mm. So, if I had to say one thing that I could, and it's very social, you get to spend a lot of time with your buddies. It's a, it's a, you know, it's a hunt that you don't have to worry about a lot of logistics, um, or gear or equipment. Uh, you obviously don't need, um, uh, tons of preparation, um, guides, outfitters, things like that. I mean, it's not, uh, they're not a, it's not that they're not a smart animal cause they, they can be, but, um, you know, anybody can, anybody can go hunt antelope pretty much um so it's a it's a great hunt for to introduce somebody into hunting uh, it's a great mentor hunt it's a great hunt for old people young people and it's a great hunt for just friends to be together and ride around in a truck people are always surprised when i say that but stop and think about it they're probably they're they're truly one of america's greatest conservation stories that we brought them back to where they are when they were on the brink of of uh, almost extinction. Um, they're great eating. Uh, um, there's thousands of them through a lot of the Western States. The access is good. The, uh, uh, economy of it is, is very, very reasonable. And like I say, from a physical demand standpoint, you know, that's, that's the one hunt that everybody can do from the time they're a little kid till the, till the time they're on the rocking chair on the front porch for the last time. So it's, uh, it's it's one of my favorite hunts. It sounds like a black bear. It sounds like a black bear hunt here in BC. Hey Kyle, it's yeah. like literally clicking off all those things. You ride around in a truck with your buddies. You don't exactly the best shape. It's great eating, yeah. conservation success story. It's it's yeah. yeah. It's, but uh, uh, a pronghorn's been a bucket list for me for for years, and Kyle knows that, right? <laughs> That's why I was buying buying all those tickets for the life member draw we had, but I didn't. Yeah, get it. maybe one day. Well. You know, four or five points in Wyoming, you have access to tremendous uh, public land antelope hunting, and you don't need to do anything but get there, you know. Hmm. Uh, that's work. what I was going to ask you about, Tony. You know, when you when you say that and you go on a, a, a pronghorn hunt, is it, you know, is Wyoming kind of your go-to place? You know, you build up your priority or, uh, or do you? We have a we have a lease in New Mexico. It's a it's a smaller lease. We only take two to three antelope a year off of it. Um, so you know, New Mexico um, is a little different, and Colorado is kind of the same. But New Mexico, they let the landowners manage their antelope if they have private land. Uh, Colorado, you can get a, a ranching for wildlife tag, which is a one for one deal on most most ranches. So if the rancher allows uh, public tag holders to hunt that ranch, then they're rewarded or reciprocated with a, with a, a, a private antelope tag. Uh, but Wyoming and Montana would be the go-to states for, for draw tags. And there's some, there's, there's some units you can, uh, get a draw tag with zero points or one points or even by leftover tags. Um, but, uh, Wyoming has some, I, I would say that that's the go-to state for, a for a draw tag, do it yourself hunt. Um, uh, year before last, I drew up, a, 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 a unit 57 tag in Wyoming, uh, tons and tons of public t uh, land and just, you know, really big antelope right off the right, you know, right near the road. Um, I've drawn two Arizona antelope tags and that's, a that's the, that's the, 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 the really, 
ultimate antelope hunt is if you can if you can draw those Arizona tags. But that's a that's a fifteen to twenty five point deal, you know. Mm-hmm. So you got to yeah. wait a long time to draw those tags, and I doubt if I'll live long enough to draw another one. Okay, yeah. Um, okay, so kind of on your your past and stuff, Tony. Did you have a hunting mentor? Was there somebody you know? You talked about reading Outdoor Life magazine and just being addicted from you know the youngest age. Did anyone? <laughs> kind of mentor year? Or? Oh, sure. My, my dad, for sure. Um, I had a cousin, my cousin, Chuck Kellagery, who was, you know, into rifles and ballistics way before anybody else uh, around here was and shooting long distance. And, you know, he was shooting, um, he was shooting 1500 yards back in the, in the sixties. So he got me into rifles when I was very young and we, you know, we would, um, hunt a lot of coyotes when I was 16 and 17 and they prime coyotes, even Iowa coyotes, then we're bringing 70 to a hundred dollars. So it was worth our gas money to go hunt them. And he was very, very, uh, good at it. So my cousin Chuck, as far as rifles and big game hunting, um, my cousin Greg, who's three years older than me, took me hunting a lot. And so, um, so my, my two cousins and my dad were really, really my big, mentor i come from a giant family so you know um um yeah it's uh it's kind of it's it's kind of neat so we uh we never lacked for for hunting partners Hmm. yeah fantastic uh so tony you've been in you know you talked about being 12 years old and back in the 60s and writing to to these outfitters in the yukon and um you know, can you talk a little bit about the evolution you've seen and also professionally too, right? Like, uh, I know that you are in the hunting industry professionally as well, um, through your business. Um, could you talk a little bit, maybe, you know, you can talk about the hunting industry in general, or if you want about sheep hunting, you know, have you seen an evolution? I, to me, it looks like there's been a lot of change, but I, I haven't been engrossed in the sheep community like you have for several decades. Um, so I'd like to kind of get your input on what your thoughts are on that evolution that you've seen since you, you know, since you were a young boy to where you are today? Well, sure. I mean, it's, I mean, the evolution obviously has been gear and technology, you know, um, the game hasn't changed. Um, the, the, the deer, elk, antelope, sheep still, still eat and, and live in the same places they did. Uh, it's, uh, it's a little bit crazy out there from a camo standpoint, from a, from a long distance shooting standpoint, from an optic standpoint. Um, I always wondered when that, when that was going to happen. Cause we watch it in the fishing industry and technology and gear changed, um, uh, about 20 years earlier than it did in the hunting industry. And when I went on my first sheep hunt in the Yukon in 1989 with Charlie Stricker, um, and a lot of guys will recognize that name. He was, he started hunting outfitting for sheep in 1956. Um, so when, when I landed in camp, um, 1989, uh, so six guys going out, six guys coming in, in the bonnet plume, 12 hunters. I was the only one that had a fiberglass stock on my rifle. Uh, so 12 rifles in sheep camp. Try that today. You're not going to see a wood stocked rifle in, in sheep camp. So no one had camo. No one had range finding binoculars. No one had a, a glass stocked rifle. Um, not going to happen today. Now that was a long, long time ago. Okay. Um, but, uh, the evolution has, has been gear and technology. So those outfitters are still riding the same horses, um, still flying the same super cubs, still staying in the, in the, you know, in the same camps where they used to, all those sleeping bags, the tents, uh, the freeze dried food, the, the optics, uh, the rifles, the calibers, the ballistics, um, sat phones. That's, that's where the evolution has changed. Hunting techniques haven't changed. We still hunt, you know, we still hunt sheep, um, same way we did, did then. Um, if anything in States like Alaska, uh, the technology has been cut back. Um, obviously the, the, the fly and hunt restrictions have changed over the year to where they're at the point now where they're not on par with the Yukon or the Northwest Territories or BC when it comes to thin horn sheep. And, um, um, 
you know, you've you've seen that change. Even the Northwest Territories are are different than the other two provinces or Alaska when it comes to what you can do and what you can't do um, with with flying restrictions and helicopters. So um, we've seen technology go up, seen technology go down. Um, when when Jack O'Connor went on a sheep hunt in the forties, it was a month long affair. So he had to he had to take a train. Uh, to the furthest point he could go in British Columbia. And then um, it was usually uh, uh, seven or eight days by horseback to get into hunting country. And so they might have been on the actual sheep hunt for three weeks, maybe even four weeks. Um, my first sheep hunt um, um, was a was a 19-day hunt, and we had 39 horses for three hunters. Um mm. You don't see that anymore. Those old those old pack train hunts are are gone. So that's the evolution. It's faster, quicker, uh, get in, get out. Quality of the rams haven't haven't changed that much, with the exception of stone sheep, probably. You know, um, you look at those old pictures from the sixties when um when a lot of those when a lot of those outfitters in northern BC when a forty inch a uh, stone ram was the was the rule rather than than the exception, but um, your quality of uh, Yukon dolls, Alaska dolls, Northwest Territory dolls, and a lot of areas are every bit as good as what they were killing thirty and forty years ago. So, um, uh, technology hasn't hasn't necessarily hurt it, uh, but it's definitely changed it. And back to your original question, that's been the evolution, um, especially. In, in clothing too, with the with the Gore-Tex and and uh, and other waterproof breathable fabrics and and camo patterns. Hey, last count, we had 120 licensed camo patterns on the market. Um, again, I'll go back to 1989 and sub subsequent sheep hunts. Right after that, the guides didn't even wear boots. They wore they wore the the um, you know the little rubber type moccasins and uh, and a pair of wool socks um and blue jeans and a plaid shirt so you're gonna see that in sheep camp today no it's <laughs> not gonna happen no absolutely so you know you talk about your first sheep hunt 30 uh 39 pack horses three hunters you know 19 day hunt uh versus you know flying in in a super cub and you're in and out you probably a lot of guys fly in for the opener kill their sheep and they're out the first, some of them will fly out that same day um, of the opener, right? So, you know, yeah. from your perspective, and you've been on a number of sheep hunts over the years, you know, do you miss that? Do, was that more of a romantic and exciting and, and pleasurable experience to go on a 19-day hunt with 39 horses? Or do you like the the experience of flying into northern BC, kill your ram, fly out? Uh, you know, is it just different or is there one that means more or not? You know, what's your feelings there? No, that, you know, yeah, that, that definitely for me, even though that's, um, you know, we all get wrapped up in size and inches and record book rams. That's the smallest ram I've ever killed, but that's the most memorable sheep hunt that I've ever been on. You couldn't duplicate it today. Um, um, can most guys do that? Uh, pr probably not. Uh, of course, sat phones and in reach and Iridium goes and things like that. I guess that helps people stay connected. But part of the romance of going on those long hunts is so you can forget all that stuff and and be away from it. But reality is we all, you know, we've all gotten used to being connected and we all want to know what's going on at home and in other parts of the world. And um, surely the the modern landscape has has changed that and forced us all to do that but yeah that was that was the most memorable sheep hunt of my life and spending anybody that knows charlie stricker spending three weeks with him is um is an experience that no one can 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 forget i mean we uh we didn't have food half the time it was you know we i didn't want to fill my caribou tag on that hunt but we had to you know, we had to shoot a caribou so we'd have something to eat. Um, he just didn't believe in taking a lot of food. And uh, um, it was, uh, we went into one camp that had uh, kind of a camp roster on the tree. And people would carve their name in a tree the last 
last time anybody had been in there was 1968. So to be able to do that and and do that like similar to what a Jack O'Connor did, not exactly because we flew into camp. We didn't, you know, we didn't ride all the way into camp, but we had a three day, we had a three day ride uh, with, with cooks and wranglers and knock down stoves and, and he still used canvas tents. And, and so it was, it was amazing. Um, yeah. So for me, that, that's a, that's the way to, to do it. Um, mm-hmm. and, and there's a lot of guys that still, uh, like to do that, but finding hunters that have the time to do that, um, or the resources to do that is, is not the way it is now. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Very cool. Okay, well, um, let's let's pivot a little bit here, Tony. You got such a history in the conservation community. Uh, you've been on the board of directors with Boone and Crockett. Um, you're currently the treasurer with the Wild Sheep Foundation and served as a director for a number of years with them. So, um, where does your conservation, I guess, ethic come from? Is it something that was instilled with you as a young man through your upbringing, your father, or, or what, what? You know, where did where did this passion for conservation come from, Tony? Oh man, I think part of it's uh, default, Kyle. <laughs> I mean, it's like uh, it's like um, people just ask you to do stuff, and and you're not smart enough to say no. Um, so you get you get wrangled in and wrangled in, and I love doing it, and you do feel a sense of giving back. And I'm seeing that in my son now, as he's you know um, volunteering to do conservation things, and maybe as we all get older. Um, it's great to see people your age. Um, uh, cause I, I probably didn't have that, that same, um, uh, passion for conservation when I was, when I was younger, you know? And, um, so you, you do have a sense of giving back and you worry, what's it going to be like? And, and, um, and I get fueled too by, by this, um, by this anti-hunting movement and, and that they don't understand it and want to take it all away from us. So I, I, I get really passionate about being involved in, in causes that are, that are, um, that are hunter conservation related where, you know, where hunting happens, conservation happens. It's, it's, uh, it's very, very true. Um, so it, uh, I think one thing, you know, feeds a, feeds another. And sometimes I'm just not smart enough to shut up and keep my hand down. (laughs) Yeah, fair enough. Um, so you just mentioned, you know, you made the statement about, you know, worried about what it's going to look like. And, and I guess that's the allusion to, you know, what conservation and wildlife is going to look like on the landscape in the future. Um, what, what is your feeling on that, Tony? Do you, are we doing good? Have we done a good job? Um, are we in good shape or are, are we in trouble? What's your just general sense overall? Just and, and I'm not talking species specific. I'm talking just in general. Sure. Well, I think we've done an okay job. Um, I think there's lots and lots of work to be done. I think what's changed is the anti-hunting movement has been around since since hunting. You know, there's always been two sides to it. You can pick up any copy of any conservation or hunting magazine that you want, and you'll see references to organized anti-hunting going back in this country 100, 150 years. It's never not been there. What's changed it is social media, the internet, television, um, all of the access to um, images that don't show hunting in a favorable light. And we've been our own worst enemy in that regard. So that uh, that has given that movement lots and lots of fuel and made our job um, a lot, a lot harder, uh, because that 75% of the general public that doesn't have a, a feeling on honey that we've always tried to convince that, that, Hey, hunters are good for hunting. We are, we are the ones that in most cases protect wildlife or reintroduce it or raise the money to, to bring it back. Um, now they start seeing images that maybe, um, don't put hunting in the best light and don't, uh, give a reflection to conservation. Um, and it's, it, it, it was, um, probably a little safer because in the old days when it was just print media, you could, 
you could tell that story of of conservation and pro hunting a lot better than um being wrecked with a with a with a a non-favorable image that shows up on the internet and never gets a, a chance to be defended um so it's made our job a lot lot tougher um and you know another challenge has been um has just been uh, outdoor TV, hunting TV, hunting-related media has, in my opinion, and there's probably guys in our industry that would hang me up by the heels for saying this. We've 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 kind of given young kids uh, and beginning hunters this idea that if they don't kill the biggest buck or the biggest elk or the biggest bear in the world that they're not, it's not a successful hunt, that it's all about size. And that's, that's been a disservice to the whole hunting community. You know, it's about the experience and it's about, um, it's about, it's about conservation, um, and what hunters do for it. And so we've, we've, um, you know, the internet and, and TV shows and many regards have, have uh, been a disservice to that. So, you know, you raised some very valid points, social media and then the outdoor industry, you know, the, the, the effect that that's had on it, um, the media industry. Um, you know, what are some of the things we can do moving forward? Where do we want to go? What can we do better to, to fix this? So, you know, and it's an ongoing problem. And I know through the foundation, through our board of directors, I'm, sh- I'm sure through your board of directors at Boone and Crockett, you know, you guys have had great campaigns, fair chase and a whole bunch of other campaigns that you've done that have been, I thought very effective, um, certainly in our community, but, uh, what can we do or what do you see we need to do a little bit different outside, um, our, our own industry to sort of, you know, try and sort this mess out. Yeah. I think we have to be very cognizant moving forward about what technology is going to do to, um, to us as hunters and to the hunting industry. Um, you just saw in Arizona uh, last month where trail cameras have been have been banned now, and I'm not not saying trail cameras are are a bad thing, but where you've got a concentration of trail cameras on public land where it actually can be documented that wildlife's being harassed, yet uh, hundred trail hundred different trail cameras on some water holes, um, you, you know, and now you've created a, a two factions within the hunting community with, with some outfitters against them and some outfitters for them. We, we have to be very careful and we, we should try and uh, prevent that in the future and all be on the same page because once we're divided, it's hard to get, it's hard to get united and see people see fractures in that, in that rock. And then they want to come in and split it even more. Um, and that's going to be a real issue, especially with with things like smart optics, where um, you know distances and ballistics are actually calculated with the with the push of a button in your scope, and takes a um, a lot of this, the. Um, I'm hesitant to say the word skill, but let's let's face it, that's what it is. Um, if you've got a solid rest, all you got to do is is push a button, and anybody can shoot a game animal at. 700 and 750 yards. So I'm not sure that that's a, that that's a good thing. And, um, and we all, you know, we all need to, we all need to, um, come to some sort of agreement. Where are we going? What are we doing? Um, what's technology's future, future role in, in the hunting, in the hunting arena? Um, and as individual states, uh, start to dictate what those laws are going to be. Um, how is it going to affect everybody? You know, we saw it, we saw it somewhat in the, in the archery, um, industry when, when compound bows first came out and then moved to, to crossbows and, um, definitely saw it in the muzzleloader, muzzleloader industry with, with inline muzzleloaders and sabos and optics. And now we're, now we're starting to see it in a more broad sense. Um, and I think we've all, you know, we've all got to be aware of what's, of what's going on there and, and where it's going, um, and what individual states are doing and what they're going to do. And 
whether um, any of this could could affect um, federal laws or federal land laws. Um, we we have to be extremely aware of policy in Washington D.C. as administrations change and what it means to us as hunters from an access standpoint um, and a predator control standpoint. I'm not a I'm not a wolf guy. I'll go ahead and say it up front and and as more states reintroduce wolves and as more wolves are found um throughout the western United States. I mean you guys in BC have had to deal with it forever. We haven't. Um but it's gonna continue to cause it's gonna continue to cause issues for for our for our game animals. So um you know when you don't have uh federal administration or federal policy uh, that's in sync with state policy when it comes to when it comes to predator management. Uh, as we all know, you get a lot of things tied up in 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 courts, and nothing happens. So um, we've we've got a lot of issues that are that are coming around the bend, um, controversial and non controversial, but still gonna still gonna affect us all. Yeah, absolutely. Um, okay, well, that's a, a really good uh, overview on on that. And so let's let's talk specifically about your conservation work. Um, and uh, now I don't know about this if I'm correct on this, but I believe you were on the board with Boone and Crockett prior to joining the foundation board. Is that correct, Tony? That that's correct. Yep. And I'm nice. I currently serve as uh, executive vice president of conservation for Boone and Crockett. That's a it's a volunteer. Boone and Crockett's a club ran organization, so all of our uh, all of our titles are um, are volunteer positions. Okay, so do you mind uh, maybe just diving into you know just the high level stuff of of the work that Boone and Crockett's doing and kind of the work sure. that you're doing? And you bet. So so Boone and Crockett is probably most well known for the for the record book side, and uh, and that's that um, that's not where the club started. The club started. Um, by a group of like-minded conservationist hunters who wanted to preserve not only habitat, but access to habitat for the, for the general public. And then the, then the record book was, um, uh, was added in the thirties, um, as more of a, uh, uh, a way to benchmark some, some science and, um, and, uh, um, nationwide with, with, with game animals, um, by recording measurements. Uh, but it became the gold standard for, for measuring a, a trophy. Um, some people like the Boone and Crockett measuring system. Some don't, it rewards symmetry. Uh, and in some animals that's very important. Some maybe not so much. Um, but Boone and Crockett's foundation is, is, is policy. And, it's uh, it uh, it tries to bring everybody together so we get clear thinking um, pro hunting conservation policy through North America, so Canada, United States, and Mexico that supports the North American model of conservation, which you know in a nutshell is that um, that uh, that without hunting there's not going to be any game animals. Uh, that's an oversimplified, um, definition of the North American model, but, um, really that's, that's it. And without public access to, to hunting, you know, everybody, uh, it's one of the reasons I love Iowa so much. We're one of the, we're one of the last States in the nation where you can knock on the door and have a legitimate chance of, of hunting for, free and killing a white-tailed deer that'll be in the Boone and Crockett record book. You guys have the same thing in BC. Where can you buy a stone sheep tag where you've got a chance to kill a record book stone sheep, you know? So those kind of things are so, so important that we don't make um, hunting uh, a privileged access sport only for or people that have the means and resources to afford it. It needs to be a, it needs to be an every man's, an every man's opportunity. So Boone and Crockett is, is um, really on the forefront of that for, for land access and, and policy there. So we do a lot of, a lot, a lot of work in Washington, DC. 
Um, it's it's funny because the general public only knows Boone and Crockett by the record book, which is still you know my probably favorite part of the club and a lot of history there. Um, but um, but uh, but it first and foremost is a is a conservation and, and policy organization. We don't um, you know we don't own any land or or do any habitat projects like Wild Sheep Foundation would do or or Rocky Mountain Elk. Um, it's more, it's more, um, it's more a, a, a organization that, um, has access to some, to some high level, um, uh, state and federal, uh, like thinkers that we can try and get things done for the benefit of, of hunting and conservation. Okay, so Tony, now with with that in mind, what would you say is kind of the pressure point issues right now? What's kind of on the agenda right now with Boone and Crockett that's of concern that you guys are looking at, and kind of something that as a board that is something that you're really tending to and kind of keeping your eye on? Is there anything that you can share right now that's sort of up front? Center sure, I mean, you? <laughs> you you guys, is it a little smoky up there right now? Yeah, um, a little bit. <laughs> yeah, well, look at look at your. Look at your neighbors, the lower 48. I mean, um, you know, the way we've managed our, our, uh, our forest for fire management, um, not conducive to wildlife health and certainly what we're seeing now with the fires. Uh, so, you know, we've all got to, we've all got to, um, we've all got to work together to, to do a better job in that. Um, you know, one of the things that, um, that Boone and Crockett and Wild Sheep both are very much on the on the forefront of is is uh, access to, to to federal land. Um, again, uh, grazing grazing issues, um, not only from a you know a disease management standpoint, but um, where you've got conflict with with sheep and cattle and and um, yeah high country elk and mule deer with, with calving, uh, the wolf and grizzlies from a predator management standpoint. So all of those, all of those policy, um, efforts. So, uh, access, access management, um, timber and range health, uh, uh, be it fire grazing, um, uh, and, uh, and hunter advocacy from a, from a hunting rights standpoint and, and the, the everyday guy, I, I think that's what, that's what sets BNC apart from maybe some of the other um, organizations out there. We're, we're, you know, we're rooting for the, for the little guy. And that's why the national park system was created under the, the guidelines of Boone and Crockett um, ducks Unlimited was was a spinoff from Boone and Boone and Crockett. Um and it's it's always been it's always been um uh and looking out for everyone as far as North American hunters and not just a particular group here or a particular group there. Awesome. Yeah. Fantastic work, uh, Tony, and uh, a lot of respect for Boone and Crockett and the great work that you guys continue to do day in and day out. So um, appreciate all your work with that. So let's let's pivot now and let's um, jump into the Wild Sheep Foundation. You're serving as treasurer on the board of directors and um, love to hear kind of uh, and being treasurer, be love to get a bit of an update. You know, I, I know in the conservation community, uh, with COVID coming around the pandemic, there was a lot of organizations that were in a lot of trouble. Um, some great organizations, but uh, a lot of overhead, a lot of staff, and they started to flounder during COVID. Um, I'd love to hear an update on on the foundation, the you know the the financial health of that organization, and and uh, any concerns that you maybe have going forward with regards to it. Sure, and so. Um so you're a, you're a, a commercial pilot, so I guess you can relate to the thirty five thousand foot view, um, mm-hmm. but but that's what it is. And you're also on the board, and thank you for all the work that you do, both for wild sheep and for and for um, 
you know, Wild Sheep Society, British Columbia. Um, I don't know how you have time to to do your real job because uh, I feel that some days. But um, you know, from a financial health standpoint, um, Wild Sheep came through the pandemic in really, really good shape. Um, and one of the reasons, as you know, is we're not um, we're not franchised with our individual chapters. So Wild Sheep's never been dependent on taking a cut from the individual chapters and their uh, events. So a lot of conservation organizations that had to rely on their that have historically relied on their on their chapter banquets. Uh, and, and some organizations, unfortunately, um, you know, some states had over a hundred events that, that had to be canceled. Um, fortunately, Wild Sheep never relied on that money. So that wasn't part of our income stream to start with. So, but what we did have was our annual convention. That was, a that was, a, a big, uh, income generator. Uh, so, um, through the leadership of Gray Thornton, we we um, we decided to do a virtual convention, and it and it paid off. We kept the continuity with our uh, exhibitors, and uh, more importantly, the uh, with our with our relationships that we had with state and provincial um, game managers. Uh, the permits sold at record record amounts so we were still able to generate that income for the individual state and provincial um uh governments to manage and and run their sheep programs um we made enough money through the virtual convention that it didn't uh um we weren't we didn't have to make any operation cutbacks other than the normal travel that uh, would have happened, did happen through, uh, no traveling through COVID anyways. So, um, where we thought we were going to have to dip into some reserve funds, we didn't have to membership hit, uh, 10,000, uh, members for the first time ever life members continue to go up. Um, so all in all financially, the foundation is in, um, uh, historically, I can't say that it's been in the best shape that it ever has been because I don't know the relative factors 25 and 30 years ago. But in modern history, the the foundation is in is in um, the best financial shape it's ever been in, and we're very fortunate that um, that uh, we gambled on the um, on the virtual convention. We're very fortunate that the um, economy stayed strong and that um, auction tags uh, continue to break all uh, records from a, from a revenue standpoint. And, um, you know, it looks like at this point that we'll have a, a, a live convention in, in January and we'll continue to uh, increase our membership and um, we're awarding more money for, um, conservation, uh, grant and aids and hunter advocacy, uh, than we have ever in, in history, probably this year, if, uh, uh, on the current, on the current fiscal year budget. So, um, just lots and lots of good things from a financial standpoint. Fantastic. So, uh, I guess uh, I'd be remiss if I didn't look for something uh, that's of concern. So, you know, is there anything from a wild sheep perspective that you see on the horizon that's of concern? Um, something out there that, you know, uh, you know, we get a great update from our conservation staff and Wild Sheep Foundation has the best conservation conservation staff in the world, in my opinion. Just fantastic feedback from our, our leadership there, um, Kevin and... Um, all the great work and that Clay's doing. And, um, you know, so I guess the question there is, is there anything that you see that's of concern or, um, you know, we've had some localized issues. We had a Nevada water problem, that sort of stuff. Is there anything there that you, that stands out for you right now, Tony? Sure. I mean, the continuing drought in the Western States has everybody worried. Um, Amove is a, 
a continuing continuing issue that we've we've dealt with and uh, the conflict with um, domestic sheep and grazing. But now we're seeing now we're seeing wild sheep to wild sheep spread. So is that is that going to be a bigger problem than we anticipated? Um, the Audad issues in Texas again, and that goes back to um, that's a that's a two sided issue because you've got large private land ranchers that rely on odd ads as income and, and they don't really want to see them exterminated. Like, like a lot of uh, the sheep biologists want, want to see them gone uh, because of habitat conflict with, with desert bighorns. Um, I think we, um, you know, we, we have to really worry about um, um, restricted, import issues if that's going to be a way that uh the anti-hunters move with the current administration to limit um uh what can be brought in from mexico or canada uh uh like they've done with some of the other international sheep or golly specifically uh so we don't want to make it a nightmare where you know, you shoot a stone sheep in BC or desert sheep in Mexico, and and then you've got a then you've got a problem trying to get him imported in the United States because of a bunch of um, bureaucracy that wasn't anticipated. Um, uh, you know, the the rising cost of of sheep hunting. I I, I remember I was hunting with uh, Jim Fink in 2011, and we were we were sitting by the campfire and he, and you know, we had a very serious conversation and that was that's, uh, 10 years ago, not that long ago, but Jim, you know, Jim said, my biggest worry about this, about the whole sheep hunting thing is, I don't know if it's going to be here because who's going to be able to afford to go sheep hunting in five years? Well, we've, you know, we, we see so much enthusiasm from young guys within the wild sheep foundation. And you go to the banquet, uh, I mean, go to the, go to the convention. It's not a, it's a young guy deal. Look up and down those aisles. There's so many young guys there. It just, it just makes you feel so good. And I look at my son, he, he lives and breathes sheep hunting. Now, whether he's going to be able to afford to, to do much of it, it's a whole different thing, but he's always, you know, he puts in for tags and he's always trying to figure out how can I do this? How can I do this? So to make it accessible to first time hunters, that's what we got to do. And my goal at, at Wild Sheep, if I could leave any kind of legacy at all, it'd be like a Wild Sheep um, FHA, like we have in like we have in the U.S., where it's where it's some type of organization that brings you know where we brought home builders and bankers and mortgage associations together to make it affordable for first-time home buyers how can we bring the industry and outfitters and young hunters together to make sheep hunting affordable for first-time sheep hunters if, mm -hmm. if we can figure that out we got a big we got a big win you know mm -hmm. and um and um um, uh, just, just, uh, being able to continue with our raffles with, you know, with state sheep lotteries, with, um, the chance to, to draw a tag, to win a hunt. Um, that's a, it's, it's a, it's all part of the North American model. And, um, we just got to keep, we just got to keep those young guys enthused and, and don't let them, don't let them give up. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Excellent point. Makes, makes a lot of sense for sure. Yeah. It's, uh, it's not intended to be a rich man's game that the, the uh, North American wildlife model was never intended, right? It was accessibility to wildlife for everybody, right? It wasn't uh, sure the wealthy elite. Um, and we've seen the follies of that program in the, in Europe, right? So, um, okay. Well, that's, that's, a, there's a lot to chew on there. Um, and a lot for me to think about actually, that was, you know, um, great to hear all that, Tony. Um, so, you know, I, I, we've taken a lot of your day today, but I'd like to wrap up with just a little bit of, you know, you've done a lot in the 
the sheep hunting world. You've been very successful. You're a member of the 700 club. And so love to hear a couple of your stories and maybe you can talk about what the 700 club is, what that, what that's, what that means, what it's about. And then also about maybe you can talk to us about your favorite sheep hunt, one that stands out, what that looks like. for you. Sure. Okay. Well, let me clarify that. I have a, I have, I have four sheep that have been officially scored that that score more than 700 and I've sent ever I've I've sent it in. I didn't send it in for a long time and then I decided to um I had I don't think it's been officially recognized by Jisco yet but they are they are official scores and it is an official 700 uh, grand slam I guess so but it's it's not been published anywhere so I want to I just want to make that clarification. Um it was a serendipitous deal for me. Um, uh, I didn't set out to try and kill a 700 slam, but, uh, you know, Bob Anderson who wrote the great Rams series, uh, I think Bob originally coined the 700 club and kind of uncovered, uncovered those guys that, uh, that, that were able to do that. He called it the, the smallest club in in hunting. So essentially what the 700 club is, is if you, if you have taken one ram of each recognized uh, North American species um, and their combined total Boone and Crockett gross score or SCI score um, totals more than 700, then you get a member of a seven, you get to be a member of a 700 club. And uh, in reality, um, you know, when you're dead, nobody will, nobody will ever, remember it so it's not like it's a not like it's a huge deal or anything it was more it was it was more of a personal deal for me I actually when I killed my last big horn that tipped it over I didn't even think about it my son was with me and he hit me on my back and he said that's 700 pops and I said what he said that's your 700 gram and I said you know what it is so uh you know a lot of guys a lot of guys have the goal of I, I I need I need that ram to get there. I'm going to buy this auction tag to get there. It's been a great deal for Wild Sheep Society because it's really fueled individual auction tags. Where a guy you know a guy needs a a particular species ram to get him over, so he'll pay. You'll get two of those guys or three of those guys competing for an auction tag, and it's really driven the price of those auction tags up. Um, um, I didn't have the resources or the benefit of using any auction tags for mine. So, um, uh, and I've got a lot of memorable sheep hunts. Every one of them is super memorable. I don't know how you can say one's one's not. I hunted uh, the same drainage in BC um, three different times uh, with uh, with uh, Prophet Musqua and and Gary Van. He is my my guide. The First two times we looked at a lot of sheep, didn't shoot one. Um, I missed a ram. The only ram I've ever missed, it was raining. Uh, and Gary and I, we he got really mad at me. And uh, <laughs> and we ended up sleeping out in the mountain on the rain and didn't talk to each other for a couple of days. Um, <laughs> and now he's become one of my closest my closest friends. And he's come down to Iowa and hunted whitetails with us and uh, everything. I talked to him quite a bit. and. Um, like to think that I had a, a little bit of a hand in, in him getting the, um, you know, getting the, 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 um, uh, uh, Dalzell award at, at the, or Galat award at, at wild sheep. And, uh, um, so, uh, that, that was one of my most memorable hunts when we killed that, that big stone ram. Um, uh, we had rode up a, a drainage and climbed up and, we're glassing some sheep and um, we couldn't find a ram, couldn't find a ram. And I'd actually fallen asleep and he kicked me in the back of the head and he said, there's your ram. <laughs> I said, where? He said, look straight across. And I looked across and there, and this big lightning storm had pushed this ram out of some real cliffy stuff. And, and uh, he said, uh, I, I think with all these storms, I don't know if he's going to be there in the morning. We got to go now. I said, you're kidding me, right? And he said, no, we're going right now. So, um, you know, we, we got to him that afternoon and, and, um, um, we didn't get back till camp till 
about three in the morning, I think. And, uh, and it, it, uh, it's probably, um, probably the best Ram I'll ever, ever take. I mean, it's, you know, it's a 175 inch stone, but, um, that's probably one of my most memorable hunts. Just being with anybody that's hunted with Gary knows he's got a really unique personality, but, um, those early hunts with, with Charlie Stricker were, were pretty cool. Hunted with Art Napoleon, who was a pretty famous native stone sheep guy, the Napoleon family in Northern BC and learned a lot from Art and, um, had a few experiences on that hunt with some grizzly bears and quicksand. And I think more happened on that one single hunt than every sheep hunt that I've ever had combined. And he still till the day he, Till the day Art passed away, he would say, "More shit, or more stuff. Excuse me, more stuff happened to you and me on that hunt uh, than any any hunt I've ever been on." And and I said, "Me, me too. I can't. <laughs> Every day something happened. Somebody got kicked by a horse. Uh, we we almost lost a horse in quicksand. You know, um, um, had two run-ins with grizzly bears. Just one thing after another. So that was a great adventure." Um, um, you know, just, uh, just all kinds of, all kinds of things. I sat down and, um, literally had three days to walk out on a dull sheep hunt after I'd killed my sheep one time. And, uh, I kept thinking, you know, maybe if I, if I fake some kind of illness, a helicopter will come and get me or something. But, um, <laughs> I sat down on the trail. It was just me and Charlie Stricker. We'd, we'd gotten to the Bear River in the Yukon, and uh, we tried to swim the horses across, but the water was so fast, it kept carrying them downstream. Well, there was a boat on a cable there that you could you could pull back and forth. So he said, uh, this horseback hunt just turned into a backpack hunt. I said, I'm not. I'm not prepared <laughs> to do a backpack. So, well, get your backpack. So we walked in. uh three days. And then we had to walk out three days. And on the way out, I just, I, as sheep hunters, we've all been there in this situation. And I sat down on my pack and the, the, I, I, I mean, I just felt like tears were going to stream out of my face that I had three days that I had to walk out of here. And, uh, and, uh, he said, he said, I'm an old man. I'm 20 years older than you. If I can walk out of here, you can and get up and get going. And he left me there. He was probably two miles ahead of me. And, uh, so I just kept going and, you know, it's sheep hunting's one baby foot in front of the other and you eventually get there. That's the only way. Um, so lots of, lots of, of, um, great experiences with some, with some great guides, Roy Rogers, Dusty Rogers, uh, Roy Rogers' son told me that, uh, and 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 Roy Rogers was a sheep hunter, and so Dusty, his son, was too. And Roy said that, told Dusty, if you ever really want to get to know somebody, go on a sheep hunt with him. Huh. And yeah. probably, you know, few truer words were ever spoken. Huh. Yeah. Well, yeah, that's a great line. The two, two great lines there, though. One foot in the other, baby steps, and then, yeah, that... So, yeah. Tony, on that note, Steve's doing his first sheep hunt this fall. And you think back to, you know, the last 30 years of your life of all the uh, time you spent in the mountains chasing sheep. What's what's your words of advice for young Steve here going on his first sheep hunt? <laughs> it's young it, Steve. <laughs> he, Steve, even though you think it's physical, it's all mental. And That's what I've heard. If, uh, if a Buddha-shaped guy like me can get through them, then... <laughs> then you can too. It's, uh, <laughs> don't, don't give up. Um, no, I, I look at it, Kyle and go, okay, I'm good. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It only, it only takes one. It only takes one. Uh, that's what I, that's what I've heard. I've heard that it's 98% mental and that other 2% is still mental, but you think it's physical. Yeah. <laughs> and if you're, if you're really good tip, if you're taking mountain house or freeze dried food, eat a whole bunch of it ahead of time and pick out your best meals. My, one of my best friends, when I took him on his first sheep hunt and we've hunted, we've hunted sheep a lot since then, but he didn't realize he, he hadn't tried any mountain house ahead of time. When we got, I mean, we're backpacking along and, um, 
you know, a full day into it, the plane's gone, the whole nine yards. He didn't, he didn't, um, what happened is Mountain House or freeze-dried food would still be in, in his stomach. It would still be expanding. So he, mm -hmm. he couldn't eat for, mm -hmm. he would just get sick as can be. So, um, that's, that's a good tip. Just mm -hmm. make sure you make sure you can tolerate freeze-dried food and you like it before you <laughs> actually go. Yeah. I've had a, I've had a chance to try the company out that, uh, I've ordered from and had a few different meals, uh, actually tried them in Reno in 2020, uh, peak refuel and went, wow, this is pretty good. And good. Order, ordered a few and, uh, wife and I have tried a few here and, I, I've replenished. I actually went and got uh, that that sausage and biscuit one, Kyle. Oh, one good! You, you showed, and that looks looks pretty good. So, doing doing okay on the food. I've had some great advice from Kyle. So uh, I don't know if he's given advice or if he says, "Hey, watch, he'll come back with a funny story." But yeah, it'll, I'm I'm looking forward to it. Um, so on that note, Tony, what's, uh, last question for you. What's your plan for the fall? Are you chasing sheep? Uh, what, what's your plan? No, first, first time. And you, you know, I think to be honest, my sheep hunting days are, are over. I've, I've got a bunch of Wyoming points stacked up. I don't know what I'll do with them, but, um, uh, it's, it's time for the young guys to draw some tags and book some hunts. I drew an Arizona elk tag. Um, in a great area. Uh, they're getting a lot of rain. So, you know, I'm excited about that and I'll, I'll, um, I'll chase some, um, antelope and some elk with my son, um, uh, and some pheasants and that's, that, it'd be a great fall. Yeah. Got a lot of memories of sheep hunts, but I don't, I don't know if there's many future ones coming up. Right on. Well, fantastic. Uh, Tony, can't thank you enough. Uh, for coming on the show, first of all, but you know, on a much bigger scale for all of the work you do in the uh, conservation community, I've always looked up to you and respected you, and certainly uh, respect your counsel and your your leadership on our board of directors. It's certainly a pleasure to serve with you, and uh, you're one of the people I really look to. And um, you know, everything you say and do is always well thought out, and um, you know, I always appreciate uh, everything you do to to keep and put those sheep on the, on the mountains. So thank you. Well, thank you guys. Thank you, Kyle, for all you do. And thank you guys for doing the podcast. This was fun. Yeah, absolutely. Sure. Enjoyed it. So have a great day and uh, enjoy your weekend. Thanks, Tony. Well, good luck with y'all's fall.